Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Hello, everyone. It's Patrick. This is the Inside the Boards podcast. We still have a few episodes in our Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1 over on the Study Smarter channel. Um, So if you are a late taker of the USMLE Step 1, go check out that podcast. Or if you're an entering first or second year medical student, uh, there are tons of episodes over there well worth a listen and incorporation within your school study um, to help you in your long-term plan for being ready for the boards. In today's episode, Chase is taking the hosting duties and interviewing Dr. Adam Rodman, who is a fellow podcaster and host of the Bedside Rounds podcast. Uh, In this episode, they cover some aspects of the history of uh, medicine and medical devices, uh, which is kind of different than what we usually do. But before we get into the main content, per usual, let's go through a question. So our interrogatory here is, which of the following findings is most likely present on physical examination? A 49-year-old male is seen for a chief complaint of cough and shortness of breath for the past month. Additionally, he reports recent erectile dysfunction, dry mouth, and a feeling of weakness. His past medical history is significant for a 30-pack year history of smoking. A chest x-ray shows a perihilar mass with mediastinal widening. Which of the following findings is most likely present on physical examination? A. Decreased strength in proximal muscles. B. Asymmetric muscular weakness. C. Increasing muscle weakness after repeated use. Or D. Hyperreflexia. And the correct answer here is something I'm not going to tell you right now. So what do we do when looking at questions? Uh, First, our suggestion is always to look at the interrogatory first so you know what you're um, looking for within the vignette to arrive at the correct answer. Hopefully, as you get to the end of the vignette, you're able to cover the answers and come up with your own diagnosis or uh, response to the interrogatory. So the key features of this case, we have a middle-aged male, chief complaint of cough and shortness of breath, some erectile dysfunction, weakness, and xerostomia, with a 30-pack year history of smoking, and a chest x-ray that shows a mass. So immediately, what's your differential diagnosis? Hopefully, with the smoking history, cough and shortness of breath, combined with an x-ray finding of a perihilar mass, uh, you're thinking lung cancer. As we approach the interrogatory, which finding is most likely present on physical examination, immediately in your mind, you should be thinking about 
possible physical exam findings. The most obvious one probably is going to be like a uh, finding on auscultation of the lungs, like crackles. But, you know, it's the board, so it's not going to be that easy. Plus, we have these other things besides the pulmonary symptoms, smoking history, and perihilar mass, which, as usual in a board exam question, are going to be relevant to the answer choices. So looking at each of them, decreased strength in the proximal muscles. Uh, Okay, we'll hold on to that one. Um, Although, you know, cough, shortness of breath, x-ray finding of a mass probably doesn't immediately lend itself to this finding of decreased strength in proximal muscles. Next, we're seeing asymmetric muscle weakness. Okay, same sort of situation there. Next, increased muscle weakness after repeated use. Now, that hopefully raises your hackles for myasthenia gravis. And then the final answer choice here was hyperreflexia, which, depending on your training and familiarity with these things, should make you think of an upper motor neuron lesion, um, probably principally uh, you'd think that. Uh, But all in all, what we can learn from the answer choices, if we're not immediately able to come up with the um, uh, correct response to the interrogatory, is this has something to do with neuromuscular problems. So what neuromuscular problems, this would be the next question you'd want to ask yourself, are associated with lung cancer? There's kind of a few perineoplastic syndromes that are associated with uh, lung cancers, but one of the ones that is, um, I don't know, often forgotten or uh, less in the forefront of many of our minds is Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome. This patient has Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, but the vignette does not really uh, scream that diagnosis. And so your thought process needs to be, overall, what is the diagnosis or a diagnosis that I can come up with from reading the vignette? And maybe you only get to lung cancer. And then you have to start thinking, what do I know about lung cancer? Quickly in your mind, hopefully you're able to come up with there are perineoplastic syndromes, and hopefully then you're able to remember that one of the perineoplastic syndromes uh, is a neuromuscular set of symptoms referred to as Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome. What are the features of Lambert-Eaton syndrome? The hallmark of this disease, especially on the boards, is symmetrical weakness of the proximal upper and lower extremities, wherein repeated stimulation of the muscle causes an improvement in the muscle weakness. So on physical examination, for instance, or in a vignette, you may see uh, an improvement in grip strength with repeated testing on physical examination. That's Lambert's sign. And so you have to have that knowledge base in this question regarding Lambert-Eaton to make the diagnosis and get to the correct answer. So let's look at them again. Decreased strength in proximal muscles, that was A. Asymmetric muscle weakness, that was B. Increased muscle weakness after repeated use, that was C. 
and D was hyperreflexia. With those in mind, we arrive at the correct answer of decreased strength in the proximal muscles. In the proximal muscles. Why? Because of the nature of Lambert Eaton syndrome. Symmetrical weakness, right? So that rules out asymmetric muscle weakness is an answer choice. Improvement in muscle strength after repeated stimulation. So that rules out choice C. And then choice D was hyperreflexia. And I should have said before that in the literature, you often uh, will read about a triad related to Lambert-Eaton, um, namely proximal muscle weakness, hyporeflexia, and autonomic disturbance. Um, if we change up the order there, perhaps we can come up with a mnemonic for this um, where you hapt upon this diagnosis by listening to the ITB podcast. You hapt hyporeflexia autonomic disturbance, and proximal muscle weakness. I don't know if that's that helpful, but maybe <laughs> a year later when you're taking the exam, you'll think, oh yeah, I just happed upon this question again. So hyperreflexia is ruled out. You actually see hyporeflexia with Lambert-Eaton. You see the hyporeflexia and progressive weakness because of the pathophysiology of Lambert-Eaton, which is an autoantibody to presynaptic calcium channel um, calcium channels on motor neurons, which is also high yield fact a type two hypersensitivity reaction. The antibodies at the presynaptic voltage gated calcium channels at the neuromuscular junction decrease acetylcholine release within the neuromuscular junction, and the reduced acetylcholine decreases muscle contraction and results in uh, the subsequent weakness. You can think of it as more calcium is able to activate the neuromuscular junction to reach a threshold of acetylcholine that allows the muscle to contract, hence why repeated muscle contraction uh, restores normal levels of acetylcholine within the neuromuscular junction, and therefore the weakness improves. That's probably all you have to know about Lambert-Eaton. Um, it's association with lung cancer, specifically small cell lung cancer, a triad that you hap upon, hyporeflexia, autonomic dysfunction, and proximal muscle weakness, improved muscle strength with repeated stimulation, the pathophysiology of antibodies, a type 2 hypersensitivity reaction to voltage-gated calcium channels within the neuromuscular junction, and I guess the other thing would be it's most commonly set up as uh, being in contrast with myasthenia gravis, which is the most common neuromuscular junction disorder involving autoantibodies to postsynaptic ACH receptors, wherein you see a decreased muscle strength with repeated use. And instead of small cell lung cancer, it's most often associated with uh, thymic hyperplasia or a thymoma. Patients present characteristically with ptosis, diplopia, weakness. And another fact uh, associated with myasthenia gravis is there's an improvement in the symptoms after the tensilon or edrophonium test. If you can reverse the symptoms with edrophonium, 
than the patient has myasthenia gravis. And also you use pyrotostigmine to treat myasthenia gravis. Uh, okay. With all that being said, go listen to our other podcasts on our Physiology by Physio podcast. Host Greg Rodden, Dr. Greg Rodden now, um, opens the podcast with an episode, um, two episodes actually, um, Starting Strong with Muscles and Nerve to Muscle, Can You Hear Me?, uh, which goes into these concepts a little more in depth. So without further ado, here is Chase's interview with Dr. Adam Rodman. So today's show, we have a very special guest, Dr. Adam Rodman. Uh, internal medicine physician and podcast host for the Bedside Rounds podcast, where we're going to discuss, well, some of the interesting bits of medical history for you guys. So, Adam, how are you doing today? I'm good. I just finished a long day on service, and I have a four-month-old baby, so I'm exhausted, but that's kind of the, that's kind of the default when you have a baby. Yeah, it sounds like it. Oh, I'm glad you were able to take the time to come on and speak with me today. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, not a problem. I am quite fascinated by some of the aspects of uh, medical history and a lot of things that just weren't really covered in my medical education. So I'm glad that we have this resource of the Bedside Rounds podcast. And I really think this is going to be a unique episode because we haven't really covered this type of material before. The first question, what is your favorite topic you've covered so far? So I love talking about the development of the physical exam in particular, and then the Paris Clinical School. So this is a time period in the, uh, the late, basically around the French Revolution, where lots of the precepts of modern medicine come from. So this is like the time of uh, Rene Lenac and the development of the stethoscope. But you also have this kind of intellectual shift in medicine to defining diseases as pathological lesions inside the human body, which seems really obvious to us, right? With the exception of psychiatry, I think all of us understand that a disease is located somewhere in the body. Maybe that's at the level of the tissue. Um, maybe it's like the BCRABL mutation and CML. Uh, I mean, maybe it's even a single gene, right? If you think about cystic fibrosis, uh, there are a multitude of individual mutations that can cause a disease, but still disease lives somewhere. But that is a remarkably modern idea. And there's a lot of baggage that goes along with it, right? So I, I've always found that this period is particularly interesting. That's my if I had to have a favorite, which is really hard, that, that's my favorite. <laughs> gotcha. So going from sort of the, the four humors and that type of mentality when approaching a disease to actually identifying a specific location. Sort of. I, not, not really. So the humors were, I mean, in, in popular culture, the humors were still very popular. Um, among like upper class medical thought, the humors had been out for well over 100 years. There was a movement called nosology before, which is the idea that if you think of like botany, right, and careless Linnaeus divided all living creatures into a kingdom. Wait, what, what, is the, what is the rhyme they teach you in elementary school? Oh, it's like King... Uh, I don't even I don't recall it anymore. So it's dear King Philip came over for good soup. Domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, and then variety. So, uh, so doctors were inspired, especially Thomas Sittenham, were, were inspired by the, the botanist. And they saw this whole big world of diseases. And they said, ah, I think we can classify diseases for the first time, like the botanists have classified all living life. So the sort of the milieu in the 18th century was this nosological milieu where you would take a really detailed history from the patient and then you would fit them into these categories. And uh, like some of these categories were absurd. Like I, I think 
a William Cullen had over 5,000 species of disease, and there'd be like 30 different types of angina. From that, that, that's kind of what this idea that disease lived in the organs or the tissues, where that came from. Wow. Okay. So it's much more complex. And I thought I did not remember that mnemonic from back then either, but it developed into this sort of, well, new classification scheme. And a lot of it, I know is from the physical exam, but also some of the technology that was coming out around that time or before, after I still not great on the, uh, the actual years that these things came out. Is there any particular maybe device or anything that really struck a fancy when you first learned about it? I, the, the history around early x-rays, of course, is, is really interesting. Um, they were invented mostly by accident by William Rentgen uh, in 1896, and he tested them actually on his wife's hand. The first ever uh, rentgenogram, so in some countries they still call x-rays rentgenograms, um, was of his wife's hand with the wedding ring on it. And the first thing she said is, I have seen death. And what's really interesting is this was... This was an example of a technology that Rentgen published it in his local, uh, he's in Germany, in his local medical journal. It was right before Christmas. And within two weeks, all around the world, people were assembling their own x-ray machines. So it's like a great example of a technology. I mean, POCUS, point of care ultrasound is really popular, but even it hasn't spread as fast as x-rays spread around the world. And then what's really cool is, I mean, it's, it's horrible, but there were horrible side effects of these early x-ray machines. So just as quickly as x-rays spread around the world within a couple of years, the people who used them were suffering horrible radiation burns and a lot of them died, these early radiographers. Oh, wow. So would you say that the, the most interesting part about that was that the x-ray was actually used in such a unique way or that it spread so fast or just sort of a mixture of, of everything going on in medical sciences at the time? Yeah, so I, I think it's uh, the milieu of the, the late 19th century was an incredibly exciting time in medical history. Pretty rapidly, you have uh, the invention of, I shouldn't say invention, the discovery of germ theory. I mean, germ theory itself dates to the early 19th century, but it was no one really truly accepted it until uh, Robert Koch discovered the anthrax bacillus in 1876. So you have this like medical field that has been intellectually equipped to to talk about these discoveries, right? They have a sense that disease exists in the body. And all of a sudden, all of these sort of career-changing things start to come in over a period of just like 20 or 30 years. If you were a, a doctor in the middle of your career in 1905, you would have seen the invention uh, or the discovery of microorganisms causing disease. You would have uh, had the development of new vaccines. You would have seen x-rays and laboratory tests come in. It was it's just a, a, such a heady time when things were changing very, very quickly and everything seemed possible in medicine, which is a, a, a bit different from how things seem at the uh, beginning of the 21st century. Yeah, I guess we have such a, a separation of powers almost now compared to how it was then. The physicians were the ones creating the devices and then putting them to use immediately. And now we have you know, pharmaceutical companies and technology companies and everything so separated that it might be not only out of the hands of the physicians to to work with these and on the creation of them a lot of time, but to really understand how some of them even work with the advancements we've gone through. Right. I, things are much more complicated now. The original, the original x-ray tubes were pretty... I mean, it, it still took skilled labor to make them, but it was at the point where an individual could still experiment with... I don't know. I, I guess you still see like in ultrasound studies, it's a small research group using them. They're not making the machines, but they're still figuring out how it works. But yeah. Uh, it wasn't as institutionalized, though it was it was becoming so at that time. True. And you bring up POCUS, and it's something that I've more recently been hearing a lot about. And even such a simple technology, a technology we've had forever, 
is still very difficult to get the training on. Is there a point in time that we really separated out that you're aware of some of the medical devices and using them as a physician versus as a technician? Oh, that's super. So this is a debate that goes back to the invention of the original medical device, which is the stethoscope, right? So this whole debate on how useful are devices in examining patients is well over 200 something years old. And sometimes when you, when you read about uh, at least in my field, POCUS is a popular subject. I'm certainly no expert in it. But the debate actually echoes uh, how some people received the stethoscope, like in the 1830s when it started to spread in France. And that's the idea of like, well, what can you really hear from it? Well, how can you interpret this? How can you explain it to other people? And is it useful in taking care of, of our patients? Yeah, I hear a lot of uh, different training sessions being placed on it. And I guess physicians still trying to find the utility of it in their own practice as opposed to just certain very select groups. So it's, I guess, kind of- You mean for POCUS or for the stethoscope? For POCUS. That same thing happened with the stethoscope. The stethoscope took uh, generations to be fully uh, fully accepted throughout the world. That's so surprising now in retrospect, since it's so widely used in every uh, specialty in every field. Yeah. I, I mean, it, the world is very different. Uh, nowadays, if you look at studies that evaluate POCUS, they're all driven in evidence-based medicine. So they're all talking about calculating likelihood ratios. Those concepts, like statistics was in infancy. Actually, when the stethoscope was invented, statistics did not exist, not even descriptive statistics. And then when you get to the period of x-rays and some of the early imaging studies being used, everything was, was in its infancy. And there wasn't really this thought that we need to look at tests and determine test characteristics until the 1980s. Yeah, evidence-based medicine is really new. Yeah, I think the first time the term was really coined was more like the 80s or something like that. Yeah, it was, the 1980s. Yeah, okay. So from a medical student point of view, which is a lot of our audience here, I suppose it's not only interesting to see where some of these devices and techniques have come from, but also maybe some of the statistics behind certain physical exams. I know there's a lot of things that we have heard questions about certain pathognomonic terms that turn out to later on not be as useful as we thought or as high yield as we thought. Do you have uh, any strong thoughts on how that is sort of developed or where it's going to go in the near future? It's tough when you're a medical student because you're kind of being, you're drinking from a fire hose, right? You're getting a lot of handed down information and it's tough to balance accepting what you've been taught, but also being skeptical of what you've been taught. What I will tell you right now is that a very large amount of what you guys are, are taught as medical students is not entirely true, even as we know today. And one of the things that I love to do is pull some of those original studies, look at where some of these strong claims come from, and, and really kind of critically assess that with tools uh, that, that we have in the 21st century. And one of my favorite examples of this is, well, Chase, let me ask you, what is the average human body temperature and what is a fever? Oh, well, according to the textbooks that we have to use for uh, board exams anyway, uh, 98.6 is about average, and we go by 38 Celsius or 100.8 Fahrenheit is uh, fever. And do you have a sense of, of where that comes from? Or has a patient ever told you, a patient like uh, someone comes and they have like kind of chills and their temp is 99.9 Fahrenheit, and they're like, hey, I know I have a fever. I run low. Has, has anyone ever said that before? Uh, you don't make the cutoff. You don't have a fever. <laughs> yeah, not really. Uh, just sort of something you've always heard passed down and not sure where it comes from. 
Yeah, so it comes from uh, Karl Wunderlich, who is a German physician in working in the 1850s. And he's really the guy who introduces true clinical thermometry. So he has, I'll show you a picture of it, but he has a, a thermometer, an axillary thermometer, first of all, that's roughly this long. Um, it's a mercury ther thermometer. You got to put it under your arm. It's axillary, under your armpit, leave it there for about 20 minutes. And he, over a course of about 20 years, take daily measurements on all of his patients, I think 25,000 patients, and has well over a million data points. And he analyzes those and he publishes it in a really famous book in 1868, where he determines that the average human body temperature is 98.6 Fahrenheit, and that a fever starts actually, he, he determines 38.0, so uh, 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit is a fever. Well, first of all, Wunderlich wrote it in 1868. The idea of the only, the only mathematical method he had was means. There was no such thing as a standard deviation. There was no such thing as probability. There was no such thing as p-values. How did he analyze his data to find out that millions points of data in, in the 1860s? He also, uh, someone tracked down his, uh, Dr. McGowan tracked down his thermometer. It's at the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia. And he compared it with other thermometers. And he found that it actually measured a couple degrees Fahrenheit warmer. And Wunderlich himself wrote in his book that it doesn't really matter if you're off by a half degrees Fahrenheit. So essentially through the 20th century, there have now been multiple studies uh, with modern thermometers, with modern statistical methods that show that not only is the average human body temperature probably in the 97s and a fever is as low as in the upper 99s, but that the most important thing is probably a variance from someone's own average body temperature. Um, he also describes that there's a diurnal variation. So like uh, the temperature is higher in the evening than it is in the morning. And he attempts to calculate fever curves for a bunch of different diseases. And this was huge. Uh, this was very, very important because traditionally, even in the early 19th century, it was understood that fevers were a disease in and of themselves, right? The idea that fever was a sign of different diseases was pretty controversial, less so by Wunderlich's time, but th this work was important. But that's where this data comes from. So it's like this thing that you guys are taught is a fact. And they'll, you'll have a test question where you have to correctly interpret, is the temperature above 100.4 or not? And that matters. And that's all, it's, it's a lie, right? We teach medical students lies and we make it sound like it's something simple when the truth is so much more complicated. Jeez, yeah, I didn't realize, I, I misspoke with the 100.8 versus 100.4, but I didn't realize. Oh no, so you're, you're taught 100.8 is something that people say. He, Wunderlich said 100.4 and I don't know where 100.8 comes from. Yeah, I know that the, that's kind of used as a criteria for many types of board relevant questions. Do they have a fever? Well, you have to go based on that. Um, but I did not realize the lack of statistical data to use the statistics that we actually use now in evidence-based medicine didn't really exist. So it's always interesting to find out those little bits of the history that we weren't necessarily taught. Well, I think it's showing how an historical approach can make you a better doctor. Um, like, I don't want to fault Wunderlich. What he did was amazing. But why do we still teach students that way? Yeah, that's a very good point. So then kind of where I want to take this next is since we've gone over some of the bits of past historical changes that we've seen now, as medicine is constantly evolving, what are some of the changes you see now, such as one example might be from a statistical difference to a clinical difference? So this is interesting. So if I had to, you, you started this off by asking what my favorite period of medical history was. And I said the Paris Clinical School. And I think ultimately the reason that was, is that uh, not to get too postmodern, but this is this is the period of the beginning of the episteme that we are in now. So an episteme, it's, uh, I mean, this is from Mich Michel Foucault. So the idea of the unspoken uh, assumptions that shape our nature, our doctor's relationship with our patients and of disease. 
And that's a pathological anatomy that the disease is inside the human body. And that in order to find disease, we have to run diagnostic tests. And those diagnostic tests could be us taking a history, doing a physical, or doing laboratory or imaging study. And fundamentally, that was revolutionary, you know, circa 1805. And it's still how we practice medicine today. Oh, and then I would say, in terms of epistemology in general, like uh, when you really get into medical history, you realize what really makes us different than our predecessors is that we've developed more sophisticated ways to analyze data and to know things, right? So the first randomized controlled trial wasn't run until 1946. Uh, prospective cohort st- uh, trials didn't start really being done until the late 19th century. And now we have many other trial designs that allow us to do sophisticated data analysis, but some would argue maybe they also help obfuscate things further. So looking at those two major trends, I see some exciting and maybe pessimistic things that are happening now. So one of the biggest things is that, I don't want to go too buzzwordy here and talk about AI, but that disease is starting to get defined in terms of discrete data points or relationships between data points. Um, An example would be uh, like post-marketing drug surveillance. So in the US and in other and Europe, a drug is released and the FDA in the US sets up a huge database to track side effects. And occasionally it'll pick up side effects. And these side effects that are coming in are not based on any understanding of where they live inside the human body. It's statistic. Um, and what I think is starting to happen as hospital systems are collecting, do you guys use an Epic system where you are? Uh, some of the hospitals I've been to do, yeah, that's probably the most frequent system I've seen, but I went through, I think nine or 10 different systems in all the places I went to. Well, every system works on a similar principle, which is that it collects, it collects discrete data points, right? Um, it's whole point, right? If you, you go through uh, a patient is in for five days, there've got to be thousands of discrete data points. And what people are starting to do is analyze these data points, and you would call it machine learning, whatever you want to call it. I don't understand the math. But to look for relationships and to look for potentially predicting things that might happen to certain patients. And what's really interesting is that this is a fundamentally different way to know about diseases, right? Because this is a disease that is defined not in something inside the human body, but in a relationship between different data points. And it, it very well might work, right? This is something that is potentially very disruptive to medicine, but also very scary to physicians because we may redefine diseases. I, we're never going to completely redefine disease, right? Pneumonia is a bacterial consolidation inside the chest, but we may find new clinical conditions that we can treat by looking at relationships between data points that are invisible to an individual physician. That's an interesting way to view it. I've uh, been hearing more lately about how big data can be misinterpreted and where we might think that we're seeing a connection where it might not actually be there. That's what I'm saying. It might not actually be there from our traditional understanding, mm-hmm. right? But why, this is why I think a historical perspective is really interesting, right? Why is it better to define a disease in terms of a pathologic lesion rather than a collection of symptoms? Yeah, I can't give a, a straight answer for that. I think there's only one reason and that it's that it works, right? I mean, we've accepted this because it actually seems to work better than the nosological method. Um, I cannot think of a primi facie reason that defining disease in the way we do is is fundamentally better, except that it helps me take better care of my patients. So I think what you're saying is some other people have said, look, they're seeing relationships or something that might not really be there. I'm saying that we may redefine the very idea of what a disease is, because as long as it works, right, as long as it allows something that we can make a difference in our patients' lives, that's how we'll judge it, whether or not it fits with our current epistemic or current conception of a disease. 
Okay. Yeah, that's fair enough. In the end, patient care should be the ultimate goal. So whatever is going to work better, despite how firm our grasp of all the technology and the data points might be, I guess, uh, well, I guess that wouldn't be completely true. Some people understand it much better than I do. How about that? I, it's all beyond, it's way beyond me as well. I, this is, I am not a math person. I did want to go back to, was it the syphilis episode with, I want to say malaria was used to cure it? Yeah, uh, GPI. So uh, malaria was used to kill uh, to cure general paresis of the insane, which is the neuropsychiatric uh, parts of tertiary syphilis. And it seems like some episodes you've covered in the past just have some really interesting ways to approach new treatments. And is that something that we can still learn from now, do you think? Is there a connection between the way things are done minus the different ethical concerns that those old... Yeah. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there, right? If you actually... Because Wagner Jureg was very proud of everything that he did and he described it in detail. And it was like, do you know the story of, of how he did the first malaria therapy trial? And that seems like a perfect place to stop and get you to hold your breath for part two of this episode. We do have our all audio cue bank, which you can find within our iOS beta app. These are audio optimized questions um, for either the USMLE step one or step two, uh, which can help you learn on the go even more. So go download that. In addition, all of our podcasts are there, as well as some meditations uh, to help you de-stress during those intense study periods and when you feel like you're going crazy in med school. The music you heard was a cover of Alanis Morissette's Thank You, um, which I did not leave 45 seconds in uh, for that intro at the beginning, even though the opening lines are, how about getting off of these antibiotics? And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know I love music, and you know that I try to put in uh, songs that have some sort of medical relevance or give me an excuse Uh, to put them into a podcast in medical education. Uh, But this cover is by Mark McKenna. Um, You can hear the full track on YouTube. As always, thank you for listening. And please, tell your friends about our podcast.